Thank you, Brother Tim. Thank you to all the praise team, all the instrumentalists for leading us so powerfully today. It's good to see each one of you here this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, those who are listening over the Internet, glad you're here too. Some are far, far away. Some are just lazy and couldn't get up in time today. But whoever you are, whatever your condition, we're glad that you have joined us this morning. Seriously. Uh, I want to begin by telling you there was a, once a man who uh, was convinced that his wife had a hearing deficiency. Any men want to raise, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. But anyway, he, he stationed, he saw her sitting in the, in the bedroom, he stationed himself behind her and he said, can you hear me? Of course, no response. Got a little closer, can you hear me? A little closer, can you hear me? Fourth time, can you hear me? She turned around and said, for the fourth time, I said, yes. <laughs> well, to be hard of hearing is bad enough. But to be hard of spiritual hearing is even worse. Now, you can go get you a hearing aid to fix your hearing problem, most likely. And they're available, lots of them. But to fix spiritual hearing deficit is more difficult. For that, you not only need a new set of ears spiritually, you need a new heart spiritually. I'm convinced that many of us have turned a deaf ear to the Lord. We're in a culture that culturally now has turned a deaf ear to the Word of the Lord. And many of us selectively tune out the Lord when we don't want to hear what He has to say to us. So my prayer is today that God would help us to hear with new ears that are connected to a new heart that's really willing and able to listen and willing to apply that which we hear from Him. I want to begin also by putting up on the screen today two things that I stand upon that I believe God wants for every person. There are two truths that we're going to focus upon today. And I want you to hear them, and I want you to hear them well, because you're listening with a heart that's attuned to the heart of God. First of all, I believe God's two great wishes are as follows. First of all, I believe God wants all people to be saved. And second, that all saved people grow. Now, are all people going to be saved? No. But I believe God wishes them to be. And I believe He wishes that once you're saved, you grow in the Lord. Now those may not sound like profound statements, but they form the basis of what I believe the passage from the Lord is saying to us today. So I'm going to ask you to turn back to, for the third week in a row, to some of you so slow, it's going to take three times to get this through to you. Titus 2, beginning with verse 11, going through verse 14. We've emphasized a different aspect of, of this passage for three weeks now. Once before I went on my vacay and now after I've returned. Titus 2 beginning with verse 11. I've told you it's one of my favorite passages in all the Word of God. Go ahead and laugh if you want to, but I mean it. It's a seriously powerful passage because it contains the Gospel in just a few verses. It really truly does. Tells why He did what He did. Tells what He did. And it tells what he wants to happen as a result of what he did. So I want you to look there again with me. Titus 2, beginning with verse 11. 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared with salvation unto all men. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, godly way in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. That's what we focused upon last week. That he might do what? Redeem us from all lawlessness to cleanse for himself a people, a special people, eager to do good works. We focused on verse 14. We will focus on verses 11 and 12 this morning. But remember what God wants. He wants all people to be saved and he wants all saved people to grow. Now let's look only at two things this morning. We're not going to be here long, but you've got to listen. And I hope you'll take these things home with you. I'm going to say some things today that you may not agree with. I'm going to tell you that up front. Uh, there are people who hold contrary opinion to what I'm fixing to say. And if that's you, you don't agree with me, you're going to have to get over it. Thank you for helping me out. You're just going to have to get over it because I believe this is straight from God's Word. First of all, there's a universal offer. There's a universal offer. So am I a universalist? Oh, no. No, no. There are, there's a church I passed it this morning going to pick up my boys. And if you don't know what that means, I'll explain it later. But I was on my way to pick up my boys and I passed by a church that has in its title... Unitarian Universalist. Now, I don't like to put down churches. I really don't. I promise you I don't. But it's a part of a merger that occurred many, many years ago between the Unitarian Church and the Universalist Church. They believe basically nothing. But in that believing basically nothing, they believe that everybody's going to be saved. God in His great mercy is going to save everybody somehow you just do whatever you do and He'll look upon you with mercy and everybody going to heaven. Don't you worry about it. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. But I believe there's a universal offer. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, I think that's King James, unto all men, all people. Some years ago, I was confused by this. I was hearing varying thoughts about this, and I, I was allowed to take a sabbatical. And you know what a sabbatical is? It's where you get to take some time off to go study. It's done in universities, colleges, and sometimes churches will allow their pastor or staff to go on a sabbatical. Well, I'd, my church was glad to get rid of me, so they gave me a sabbatical. And I went to uh, some universities, uh, libraries, to study the issue of uh, this issue, this issue of salvation and how it is applied. And from that sabbatical time, I came back, I wrote a book, I brought it today. It's entitled, Trouble with the Tulip. 
And some of you think it's about gardening because there's a beautiful tulip on the front. God bless you if that's what you think. But I wrote this little book decades ago. And uh, in fact, there's a picture of me back when I was, oh my goodness, I've never been that thin, that good looking. But photoshopping was even used back then, apparently. And by the way, these will be on sale outside as we leave today. You can get three for five dollars. No, that's not true. Three for a hundred, that's better. No, they will not be on sale today. But I'll get you one if you ever want one. I wrote the book because I believed that we needed to do some clarification about what I call a dangerous doctrine called five-point Calvinism. And this is a doctrine that has caught up thousands of believers and is taught in thousands of churches, some within the sound of my voice. It is a doctrine that portrays a God whose nature is unlike the caring God that I call upon. A couple of scriptures I think are pretty clear. We don't have them on the screen, but you can write them down. You should write them down. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow or slack concerning His promises. As some understand slackness or slowness, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all might come unto repentance. All might come unto repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 And then listen to 1 Timothy 2.3 and 4. This is good. It pleases God who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But look at verse 11 of our text today. For the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. The obvious truth here is that God's grace that we've sung about throughout the entirety of this service is redemptive, not destructive. That He has a plan for us. That He wants us to be saved and He wants us to grow once we have been saved. That's what He wants. He makes it very clear in Scripture. Now, I do agree with some of my Reformed friends' beliefs. I really do. And I'm going to stand before you today, and you're going to think I'm real hard on Calvinists and Reformed people, and I am. And I have debated them for decades, and will continue to. But I love them. They are not unbelievers. They just hold to a view of Scripture very contrary to mine. It's a five-point doctrine. First espoused by John Calvin. Later really expanded upon by many, many, many others throughout the years. In fact, the most popular writer on any college campus, secular or sacred, today is John Piper. And he writes from very much a Calvinistic perspective. He's a good man. By the way, he's from Greenville. His cousin was one of my wife's best prayer partners. Yep, I say cousin. I'm prone to say things oddly sometimes. I apologize to you visitors. But it, it's, 
its doctrine is T-U-L-I-P. I agree with some of the T, not all of it. I'm more Wesleyan in my T than I am Calvinistic. But it says that we are lost without God's help. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen. That is so true. I am depraved. Amen. Amen. You didn't have to say it quite so loud, John. But I know I am. I know that I am. I am. Without God, I have no hope. No hope. Now the Wesleyans say that a part of God's image survived in the fall so that you can at least respond back. Calvinist John said, no, it's all gone. However you want to define it, I agree with most of the Calvinists in their teeth. You, unconditional election? No. L, limited atonement? Oh, no. I, irresistible grace. If God has called you to be saved, they say, you're going to be saved and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. It is irresistible in nature. So God has chosen some to be saved and some to be doomed to hell, fire, and damnation. And this choice occurred before you were ever born. And there's nothing you can do about it. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. I reject the U, the L, and the I. P, I'm with those guys. Perseverance of the saints. I am with them 100%. If you're truly saved, you're truly saved forever. Oh, my friends, Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation unto all people. And you can look it up in Greek. We had a young man here from Anderson University last week who held, I said, Son, what you got in your hand? It was a Greek Bible. I said, Oh, really? He said, yeah, I'm learning Greek. I said, well, that's good for you, son. So do you know what all means in Greek? All. In a setting like this, I don't have time to go on and on and on about Calvinism and Reformed theology. And it's many hundreds of variants. Well, let me give you a few truths that I want to share with you today that I've discovered from a long-term study of this doctrine. First of all, the Bible nowhere states that God has elected some and others to damnation. It nowhere states that. You're going to quickly retort and say, but pastor, does not the Bible use words like foreordained, foreknew, predestined, chosen? Absolutely. And those are precious Bible words that mean what they mean. But nowhere does the Bible say God has capriciously and arbitrarily chosen some to be saved and some to be lost? So if you really follow the doctrine of Reformed theology, if you've got three children, you don't know which one of those three has been doomed to hell and there's nothing they can do about it and nothing you can do about it. One might be saved of the elect. And oh, my friend Johnny Hunt once got confronted by some graduates of a local college who confronted him by saying you have no business preaching like this in front of where there might be unelect people, uh, non-elect people. He said, well, maybe God will forgive me for so doing. Nowhere has God said that. Second, God has ordained the how, not the who. 
He has foreordained the way of election is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. People like to point to Ephesians 1, whom He foreknew, He predestined. Amen, amen, amen. But 11 times in the first 11 verses of of Ephesians chapter 1, in the Greek or in English, He uses the phrase in Christ 11 times. It's in Christ that you are foreordained. It's in Christ that you are predestined. So when you as a man, woman, boy and girl say yes to the salvation that Jesus freely offers and He wants you to say yes. If you say yes, you become a part of the preordained, predestined people of God. He predestined that it was through Christ that you could come to know God as Lord and Savior. It's in Christ we become a part of the elect. So are you a part of the elect? Have you been saved? Then yes, you are. Are you a part of the predestined? Then yes, you have been saved. So it is in Christ we become a part of the foreordained body of Christ. And if you are not a part of the body of Christ, you are lost and doomed to hell. Forget what the Unitarian Universalists said. You are doomed to hell if you have not given your heart and life to Christ. These are serious issues, my friend. Serious issues. Number three, this deals with the very nature of God. Is our God a God of cold, calculated prejudice, or is He a loving God of grace? You know the answer to that. And it's the former, not the latter. He is a loving God of grace. And I praise His name for that. I need that, don't you? And number four is the issue of free will. John Piper's a great writer. I like most of what he says. I really do. I promise you. But he stood in front of 50,000 college students at a a Catalyst conference Christmas just a few years ago and got up and said, the doctrine of free will is a heresy. Well, I disagree, Dr. Piper. I disagree totally. I believe our God is a God who allows free will. If God is as sovereign as many believe He is, that He has preordained every aspect of our lives, then we have to ask the question, why then do we sin? If everything is so ordered out for us. So some don't say that, some do say that. But I say to all of them, if it's all pre-planned and there is no free will, then did Jesus set up the rich young ruler? Who came to him, Master, what must I do to, a, to a, attain eternal life? Oh, son, doesn't matter. You either preordained to be saved or you're preordained to be lost. Doesn't really matter, son. You can't help it either way. Did Jesus set him up when he walked away sorrowful for he had great riches? Jesus set him up, I guess, according to Reformed theology. No, you know our Lord Jesus wouldn't do that. When Jesus stood as he was getting ready to go and die in Jerusalem and he stood there and he wept and said, Oh, Jerusalem, why have you forsaken me? He wept. Why would he do that if it was already foreordained? Who would be saved and who would be lost? If they could not reject him for it's not in humans' capability to accept or to reject, then why did he weep over them? God's plan through the ages has always been to provide a way of salvation through the shed blood, the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. God created us to have fellowship with Him. And I do not believe He would violate His own desire by making some have fellowship with Him and forcing others not to have fellowship.
Is that clear? I think it's pretty clear. I really think it's pretty clear. For the salvation, grace of God has appeared with salvation for all. Will all be saved again? You know the answer is no. Jesus wept over the fact that few will be saved. But many will follow the road that leads to destruction. He wept over that. It burdened him because most would say no to the gospel. And many would say yes to the way of destruction. Oh, my friends, I ask you today if you accepted this offer from the Lord, a free gift that you must freely receive by faith. But we can't stop there. God's number one desire is that you be saved. But His second desire is that you grow. And He deals with that in this passage. This is our last time to deal with this passage. God's second wish is also accomplished by His grace. Satan's two great desires. What do you think Satan's two great desires are? They're parallel to God's two great desires. Number one, that you stay lost. And he'll use people in your life. He'll use relationships. He'll use religion to keep you lost. If he can convince you in a wrong religion and you believe that that's the way to get to God and it's a lie, then he's won his battle, hasn't he? Because you are listening to the wrong voice and you've accepted a false theology, then you're in trouble. Satan's great desire is that everybody stay lost, but he loses that battle often. And people get saved. What do you think his second great desire is? That saved people stay weak. Because Satan knows he can often do more damage with a weak believer than he can with a lost person. He knows. So his desire is to keep you lost. And if he loses that battle, it's to keep you weak. So verse 12 shows us that God's grace enrolls us in a great training school. He wants to teach us. So I ask you right now as we begin this discussion, how are you doing in that school? How are your grades? Some of you might say, Pastor, I think I'm a dropout of that school. How are your grades in God's great training school? Well, the phrase in verse 12, it teaches us, shows that God is to be applied, that grace is to be applied in our lives on a daily basis. Grace makes ethical demands of each of us. Yes, we're to train a child in the way they should go. And that entire training process involves teaching, encouragement, correction, and discipline. And God does the same to each of us. Part of it's negative. There is a negative, here's a fancy word for you. There's a negative pedagogical purpose. Pedagogical. That's a good word. They all went to school for piano pedagogy, which means so she could learn how to teach piano. There's a negative teaching purpose of the grace of God. It says you need to say no to ungodliness, to lawlessness, and, un and lustful passions. It is in the Greek, if you want to know the Greek, it is an aorist participle which speaks to the powerful double renunciation of sinfulness in our lives. The Bible says you are supposed to say no to certain things in your life. 
This should say no to any attitude that's not right, any ambition that is not correct, any affection that is not of God, any action that is contrary to the word and way of God. And it is our need as we learn to say no to certain things in our life that we should every man, and this is particularly important for teenagers, children, not really, for all, everybody, that we become acutely more and more aware of the footprints of the evil one as he seeks to sneak up and do what he does so well in each of our lives. Say no to that which is wrong. But second, we see there's a positive goal. Verse 12 also ends up on a positive note. He says, say no to certain things, but yes to other good things. He says, yes, you should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That speaks to three directions. Number one, to inwardly, that we live self-control. To outwardly, that we live uprightly, or we live righteously. And upwardly, that we live godly lives, meaning fully devoted unto the Lord. And all of this is possible. What does the Bible say? In this present age. The latter part of this verse stresses our educational goal in God's great training school. He tells us where He wants us to grow to. It's what each of us should be seeking. God wants you to be saved. Are you? God wants you to grow. Are you growing in Him? It's all possible. That's what He wishes for each one of us. Are you willing to say no to what you need to say no to? And are you willing to say yes to what you need to say yes to? Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank You for Your Word. A hard word, but a strong word. Good word for each of us. So Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that we would listen to what You say to us today. There may be lost men, women, boys and girls in this place today who need to say yes to You. Oh God, would You save somebody today? Somebody here, somebody listening over the internet, would You save someone today? Holy Spirit, I pray right now for Your convicting power in the hearts and lives of lost men, women, boys and girls to save somebody Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, continuing to teach us through the grace of Jesus to say no to what we need to say no to, and yes to that which we should say no, yes to. Oh, Father, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through the Holy Ghost, that we might do what we need to do. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's